Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Matt Kerber. I've already been before you today, but we're turning now to our our sermon. Uh, Just a quick word. We're dismissing children for Children's Church, and as we mentioned, that's located a little differently today. Um, In case you didn't notice walking in, uh, this is not a church building. Uh, We we do our best to transform this room and this space, and over the last four-ish years, um, we have continued to really get a lot of benefit from this building. Um, our Sunday school classes expand all over the place. Uh, we can use this for a lot of purposes, and we are so thankful. Um, we're also renters here. We have a wonderful relationship with the 20th Century Club, and sometimes we have to navigate around other things happening. So uh, two times a year, they're usually in May and June, we are bumped to another location. And then once a year, we share the building during our service with another large group. Um, so the other group in the building, the Jesters, has no affiliation to us before uh, at all. We, we smile and nod, we've seen them before, but they're a completely different group. And we're a little more limited today. Uh, over the years, when we've shared the building, there have been times where, especially when the doors open, we hear a little noise. And one year, they even played the bagpipes as I was drawing to the end of a sermon. So it's a reminder, uh, as was given by, uh, in our prayer, that we live in a world where we don't control everything. Um, So we're going to roll with it and uh, be thankful for all that we have, um, even as we recognize a little bit we don't control here today. So especially afterwards, um, we're going to stay contained in this area, and then next week and there on after, we get all the benefits of the building. So um, we stay uh, light and flexible as best we can. Um, Turning now to the book of James, James chapter 4, you'll notice uh, in the title of the sermon it says part 1. And uh, the reason that is, uh, is it would have said part one if I had accurately put that in the uh, title. It, it should have said part one because we're going to do two things with the same passage uh, uh, two weeks in a row. Next week we're going to come back and have exactly the same passage before you. And uh, the reason for that is that we have some major themes that we're hitting in this passage that are really shaping the whole book of James. So this week, we are going to focus on just two verses, and we're going to talk about how they fit to the larger scope of the letter, and next week we'll come back and we'll deal in detail with what's going on here. So you may notice I've got questions on things that James talks about, the pastor didn't mention them, well you can just let those questions marinate and ripen, and next week we'll we'll very eagerly talk about them. So James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, what we're going to try to do today is to focus on just a couple verses in this passage and think about the larger scope of the book of James. It it often feels to me that uh, preaching through a book of the Bible or reading through the book of the Bible, studying it, when you're working through a book of the Bible, you often can't always see the big picture until you've gone a little ways through it. An analogy comes to my mind if you're hiking a, uh, a mountain peak, I think of some of the white mountains in New Hampshire that you, you might go on a, on a day hike to the top and back. As you start and you move through the woods, you often don't really have a sense of where you are. You may be crossing brooks and uh, small streams and climbing over boulders, but it's only when you've gotten about halfway there, as you've gotten to the top, and then you have to come back down, that usually might break through the tree line. Suddenly you can see where you've been. Well, for me, working through James has felt a bit like that. James is not an easy book to find structure in. We wish that James had given us some more clear words that would say, here's what I'm going to talk about, in comparison to some other books of the Bible. Sometimes it's hard to know how the pieces relate together. Uh, Many scholars, as they wrestle with the book, say they're, they're not sure the way to best find the structure or what are the central themes uh, we've argued, I've been arguing as we've gone in a, in, a, in a positive way, I've been presenting the argument that whenever we look at James, we can see several large themes uh, that he introduced in, in verses 26 and 27, these three main ideas he's going to cover in the body of the letter. James talks about the importance of bridling our tongue and being careful with how we speak. He also talks about our call to care for those in need. He introduces it by talking about orphans and widows, but he applies it more broadly. He says your your faith should lead you to care for your neighbors around you. And third, he warns us against the influence of worldliness or the the human system of thought that surrounds you. And over the last couple of months, we've now worked through those three themes, we come to a section now where, having addressed those three themes, James begins to find the resonance between them. He begins to address what I believe is the heart of what he wants to tell us. And that, I believe, is found in verse 6 and verse 10. James reminds us that God gives more grace And as a result, we are called to humble ourselves before him that we could receive this grace and be exalted by God. God gives more grace. Grace received by the humble. This is really good news. In the Bible, grace means unmerited favor. Favor from God. Blessing from God that you can't earn, that you didn't earn, that God gives freely to those who ask in humility. This is life-changing news, world-changing news. If we're honest, we'd reflect on times in our lives where we might think that perhaps God is running out of grace for us. Uh, for me, the, one of the most uh, uh, practical applications of this, the times where I'm, I'm praying most desperately for God's grace, is about one minute before I have to stand up and, and stand here. You guys are finishing the song, I'm in my seat praying, oh God, please have mercy and grace, because I'm not sure I know how to make my way through this. I have a picture in my head of a brick being pushed off the edge of the building, and I think that's what my words are about to be, unless you show up, God, 
please give me mercy and grace. And you notice that I usually, at the end of the introductory pray, I, prayer, I pause, and, I'm at, and before I've asked you to pray for me, right? That we don't want a brick falling off a building. We'd like God to do something useful during this time. Well, the strange thing is, I tend to do that every week. So I have the sense of like, oh my goodness, I'm back with that same prayer. God, please be merciful again. You might feel that as well. That you're, at, you're preparing to go to your work on Monday morning and it's the, it's the same job you went to on Friday and you're aware that you need God's grace and you're saying, God, would you give it to me again? The frustrations that arise in difficult relationships with difficult people and you find yourself saying, I feel like I've said this prayer before. God, I'm asking for your mercy for a sin I've confessed before. I'm aware now in ways I haven't been aware of just how hardened my heart can become before you. Would you soften me again with the sense of deja vu? I've prayed that before. One of the temptations we can say as we bargain with God in prayer is to say, God, if you give me this, I'll never ask for it again. Have you ever found yourself saying that? Hopefully not. Because you're going to need to pray again, probably for whatever that thing is, if it's a legitimate need. And we sometimes might imagine that coming to God is like coming to a neighbor to ask for a favor, and they have sort of a limited supply. And we know we, know we ask so much of our neighbors, and at some point maybe we're asking too much. But God isn't like that. He is abundant in grace. James says God gives more grace. He has so much grace that he's not going to run out. He's God. He made the world. He's all-sufficient. He's all-powerful. He's self-existent. He has grace to spare. God gives more grace. This is such good news. But if we're honest, hearing that proclamation can sometimes sound a little bit old school. Uh, Maybe it doesn't shake us or shock us the way it should. God gives more grace. Well, I think there's two reasons for it. One is we have too small a view of God. And many of the books in the Bible will work to shape our thinking about God, to show us His bigness, His power, His might, His majesty, to draw us to a place of reverent worship. Even the biblical word of fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. We've talked about that through the book of James, and that is a common theme in the Bible that addresses our problem of faith, helping us to see God better. James does that some, but that's not primarily what happens in this book. James approaches the other side of the equation. Rather than thinking mostly of faith, James thinks of the opposite side, which is repentance. And that is, James would say, part of the problem that we have when we don't see the greatness of God's grace and mercy is that we don't think we need it. If one side of the coin says, I don't see God to be big enough, the other side says, I see myself to be too big. In other words, the reason that that I think James would warn us about why we won't be just uh, awestruck at the pronouncement of God's abundant grace, the reason is we might not think we need it. Our self-sufficiency doesn't put us in the posture of humility where grace is so wonderful and so important. And I think on the whole, that's the concern that James brings. It's a very practical concern. That's what uh, many people have always noticed in the book of James. It's a practical book. James is a pastor speaking to real people. He knows them. And he's dealing with a practical issue. 
you don't know how much you need God's grace. I think that would be the letter, the, the central theme of the letter that is really resonating here. And therefore God calls us, or James calls us to humble ourselves before God that we could receive the abundant grace and mercy that he has. I'd like to do three things as we walk through this today, this big idea. First of all, think about how that fits in the theme of the book of James as a whole. We're just going to look back a little bit. I think it's appropriate we do that sort of ha- a little over halfway through our hike uh, up, the, up and down the mountain of the book of James, so to speak. We get a better view and we, we're reminded of where we've come from. But, but secondly, we're going to ask this question, why does James bring the big theme here? Why not tell us in the beginning of grace and mercy and humility? And third, we'll just ask practically, how does it help us to live differently? Um, so first, how, does this, how is this grounded in the, the large theme? Next week, we'll think specifically of this passage. So again, there, there's some questions you have we won't answer today, but how does this relate to the theme of the book of James as a whole? As I said before, I think we can see three main concerns in the book of James, how you speak, how you act, warning against worldliness. But if we go back even a little further in the book of James, we could look at the first 25 verses as being verses that sort of set the course. They're kind of a prelude. James told us in the beginning that he was writing to people who were suffering. He addressed the audience of the book as as, uh, exiles of the dispersion. We believe James was in Jerusalem writing to uh, Christians, probably Christians of Jewish heritage that had been forced outward for a variety of reasons. He's sending this letter out while he remains in Jerusalem, and he's writing to people that are facing trials and difficulties. And we can think of the many, many ways they would have been experiencing this, but the point he makes early on is that when you're facing a trial, you need to know God can be working for your good in it. But what you need to know, James says, is that your problem isn't just what's out there, but your problem is in you. What's your problem, James says? The problem you have is your disordered desire in your heart. That's the real problem. You're tempted to see whatever you're facing on Monday morning or, or Friday evening as being the biggest problem. But James says the real thing is in your heart. And you need to receive the word of God with meekness because it can save your souls. Now, at this point, up until that point, uh, many people are reading along and they sort of follow what God, what God is telling us through James. All right, there's problems in the world, but I need to examine my heart that I can be transformed. And right there, James does something that can surprise us. We might have expected him to go on a, a longer explanation of how it works that we receive the word with meekness and what does heart change look like and what does the word tell us that will change us. But James does something different that has caused problems for so many readers down through the ages. He makes what feels almost like a left turn. Having said, God changes you as you receive the word in meekness, James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then he launches off a long discussion for several chapters about all the things you need to do. Now, at this point, uh, maybe if you're a new, new Christian or a new reader, that might not seem strange, but more, more seasoned readers of the Bible can struggle at that point. They might say things like, well, doesn't it seem like James is landing awfully heavy in all the commands? Where's the grace? Where does Jesus fit into this picture? Why is he leaning so heavily on all of the things we must do? He hasn't told us anything about what God has done for us. 
And if you were to compare this to another book, like a book written by the Apostle Paul, who so carefully starts by laying out the story of God's mercy and grace, and then saying, in light of God's mercies, offer yourself as as a sacrifice before God. Romans 12. Why doesn't James do it that way? I was talking to a pastor friend of mine a, a month ago, and I told him I was preaching through James, and he said, I don't know how to preach through that. Isn't that all law and works? Maybe you felt that a little bit. Well, even, even uh, going back in the history of the church, people have wrestled with that part of James. Uh, one of the early reformers, Martin Luther, struggled deeply with this letter. He, he struggled with the commands and some of the language of justification. At, at one point, he introduced the letter by calling it, quote, a right strawy epistle. Right? To, to translate that a little bit. A very much in a letter made of straw. Right? It wasn't exactly the thing you would expect him to say about the book of the Bible. He seems to have moderated later and many other reformers return to see the value and the importance of the book of James, but it was really this issue that he was struggling with. What do we do with the sense that James is so practical and so heavy on command? Is it law without grace? Well, again, if we read only a little bit of the book, we may conclude that, but here at the summit of the letter, I think we've come to understand and see James' central concern We need grace. That's our commands that God gives us. He's God, and we're not. And we're called to conform to his way of working in the world. It's good. It's true. It's beautiful when it's done, but we can't do it without God's grace. This leads us to the second question we may ask, which is why does James structure it this way? I'm going to give a disclaimer and say I don't know for sure. He doesn't tell us, and I'd like to ask someday. But having worked through this for a couple months now, having just sat in it hours every week, I have an idea. This is why I think he does it, and and I think it can help us to make sense and really to use and take advantage of all the things happening in the letter. I think James does it this way because he knows that humility is best learned through experience and not just in theory. If the central concern of James is that we be a people who are humble before God using his grace, I think James, as a very practical pastor, knows that often that message is best delivered after we've wrestled some with what we're really called to do. It's a different way of approaching the issue. It doesn't contradict the things that Paul might do, but it complements them. It's very practical. Think about your own life for a second. Isn't it true that you appreciate things most when you've come to see how much you need them? There's an old saying that goes like this, hunger is the best sauce, right? So that's what I rely on as a cook. If I'm going to cook dinner, I delay dinner as long as I can and cut off the snacks. And if everyone's really hungry, they'll say, this is the best mac and cheese I've ever had. You use the analogy of hiking. If you've been on a long hike before and you're carrying a backpack with your food, you never pack enough and you're expending ridiculous calories. And by the end of your hike, when you come down the mountain, you're so hungry. You're eating stale popcorn in your car and you're thinking, I, I once ate the ketchup packets. I was so hungry. This is good ketchup. Right? I think James is practical and wise and he knows that and he says, listen, 
what I'm going to do, again, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you my, my insight here. You take it for what it's worth. I think the, the effect of the letter, though, is to work through several chapters, in our case, several months of this high calling of the Christian life. And throughout, we've been looking forward to humility and we've been referencing other parts of the scripture. We've never wanted to to try and do any of these things without the grace of God. But I think James's insight here is that once we've wrestled with the calling of the Christian life, we really know that we need mercy and grace. Sometimes it's really only there that we learn. It's experiential education. Let me just, again, speak practically about it. What are these three things James has been doing. He returns to them. It's not even always easy to know exactly his order, but these three things keep coming up. Watch how you speak. Care for those in need. Watch out for worldliness. And just think about those things in your life. If you've been wrestling with them at all as we've moved along, well, I'm sure one of the immediate impacts is you've begun to see it's really a lot harder than you thought. Isn't that the case? You know, if you're not wrestling with anything, your knowledge of grace isn't always that deep. But if you actually begin to see who God is and what he calls from you, your sense of being ready to be humble and seek out the grace of God that he gives more of, boy, you're in a much different place, aren't you? Just think, if you, some of you have been doing this, you've been as we've moved through commands about our language You've begun to think about, why do I say what I say? You ever seriously done that? And you reflect on the things you said during the course of the day, and you start to think, wait, why was I saying that? Oh my goodness, I was trying to promote myself. I was, that was a, I mean, if God gives you insight to see this, I was subtly tearing down my friend just a little bit because I wanted to feel better about myself. Now, you could gloss over that pretty easily, but if you're actually looking and bridling your tongue, well, for some of us it comes on the opposite side, right? You're a little more introverted and reticent to speak, and you realize God's calling me and bridling my tongue to share honestly his work in my life and the things I'm struggling with. I sometimes identify more with that side of it. If you are, you've probably had nights where you've, you've been trying to go to sleep and you've thought of something you said during the day and you thought, oh, I feel so stupid now. Maybe I just want to go back to not saying anything. More of an introvert challenge. God gives more grace. That's what you need. You don't need to stop following and thinking about that, but boy, this good news, now you're ready to be humble. God gives more grace for the stupid things you've said in the last couple of months. The stupid things I've said it's hard to talk for a living and to think about this stuff. I, I, I agonize it over it more than you can imagine. And maybe you do too. Or maybe you've taken up a, a hard ministry caring for people in need. Maybe you've given yourself to reaching across barriers and boundaries of class, race, ethnicity. And you found as you got into it, it's harder than you ever thought. Maybe you've given your life to uh, caring for orphans and widows, adoption, foster care, guarding the life of the unborn, caring for mothers who walk through unexpected pregnancies. You've got into it and you've, you've seen the excitement and the enthusiasm. And yes, this is God's calling. 
And a couple weeks, a couple months, a couple years later, it is so much harder than you thought. I was talking to a friend of mine, a pastor at Presbytery yesterday, who has given himself so fully and so completely to the love and care of his community. And it is so heavy. And he shared with me, with tears in his eyes, the challenges and the burdens of the people that he's caring for. It is both beautiful and overwhelming at the same time. It is crushing. Ministry is crushing. The ministry you do and your family and your work it, it, through the church or beyond it, it can be crushing. And when you've given yourself to that in obedience to God, He has a purpose that you maybe didn't imagine that you would be humble and that you would know I don't have it. The lead uh, lead sermon yesterday at our Presbytery gathering of pastors was by a, a wise old pastor who basically said to us, you guys are all insufficient for what you're called to do. (laughs) How's that for encouragement? (laughs) It's actually quite encouraging because you looked around, every other pastor's nodding their head. You too, friends, are insufficient for what God has called you to, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. He's not going to run out. I think this is where James is really getting excited. He's patiently brought us up the mountain, walking through the goodness of God's commands. A picture of the good life, the right life, the obedient life, and the place where now we know that at the root of it all, and he's hinted all along the way, but now he says so clearly and boldly, God gives you the grace you need. You can't do it on your own. Perhaps you've recognized the challenges you face from a world and a culture that's often moving a vastly different direction from God. And families and work and school, a worldliness, a way of thinking that's opposed to God. If you've spent your life running with it, you never notice. But the moment you start to go upstream, the opposite direction, you find the overwhelming weight of challenge. I remember being a, a Christian. I became a Christian as I was finishing college. Most of my college was spent... Uh, uh, doing what I wanted and what people around me said was good. And when I started to follow God, I thought, this is so much harder than I had imagined. Why does it seem that suddenly everything's going the opposite direction? It's what James calls worldliness. We'll see more of that next week. We talked about it some last week, but it's a place and the position and the, the posture in which we'll either be overwhelmed, we'll compromise, or we will drink deeply from the grace of God. Well, third and finally, what do we do with this? Let me just close with a very practical offering for you. James is practical. Everyone who reads it notices that. He's just really concerned with the grace of God and the call to humility in our daily life. And that is this. There are, I think we could say in the Bible, uh, multiple approaches to following God. I mean, one Jesus, one Lord, one baptism. But pastorally speaking, Different motivations are given in different places for different people. And they don't contradict, but ultimately they complement. They meet us in different places of need. As I used before, I shared the example of one of Paul's letters, the letter to the Romans. It works like this. It has 11 chapters of truth and doctrine. And then Paul says, therefore, in light of God's mercy, do these things. It moves from instruction to application. 
It's a really, really good model, and it fits for a lot that we do. It's more of a classic model of education. Many of the things you do involve a lot of instruction, and then you go and do it. Right? You, you had medical school if you're a doctor, and you learned a lot, and then you started to practice. Right? No one wants a doctor who walks into the room and says, you know, I've been reading a lot about this. I'm so excited to try surgery for the first time. You're like, oh, well, let's rethink this here. Right? The other side, the other way of education and learning, the one that I think James is thinking about here is more practical, and they really always have to go together. We might call it experiential education. You learn in the doing as you go along. Most of you, if you know a second language, probably learned it the first way. You learned it in a classroom where they taught you the language and the letters and the grammar. It's really helpful. But most of you learned your first language a different way, didn't you? You learned it living in it, experiencing it, watching it in your parents and the people around you. In other words, you didn't wait, your parents didn't wait till you were old enough to know grammar to teach you to speak. Well, these things don't contradict, they complement. And for some of us, what we really need is more time thinking and learning about God. But I think James has also a, a, a complementing concern. And that goes something like this. If you spent all of your life waiting to get it all figured out before you did something, you'd still be waiting. I think that's how James works. He's practical. How much do you need to know before you can start guarding your tongue? James would say, not a lot. Start bridling your tongue. And when you start doing it, you'll be ready to hear what I have to say next. In other words, sometimes one of the traps that we face is the desire to get everything so right before we act that we never go anywhere. I was talking with uh, Derek Bates, campus pastor at Pitt yesterday, and he said, you know, I, I see it as this trap of authenticity. Where someone's so desiring to make sure their heart is perfectly grasping truth and moving with exactly the right motivation that they never do anything. You find that temptation in your life? I think James offers a, a, a constructive way of thinking about Christian discipleship. It's complimentary. And please, more of you come to our adult Sunday school education class. It's amazing. Really good stuff to learn that you can then therefore go and offer your body as a living sacrifice. But you know what? Even after the best of Solgi's classes, you're not going to have it all figured out. You've got to act. You've got to go out and think about what you say and care for your neighbor in need and guard against worldly wisdom that your life would be shaped by God. Friends, as we do those things, we learn the lesson of James in the doing that the engine of it all, the motivation of it all, the power of it all is the abundant grace of God that he gives to us. And I think James would tell us sometimes it's the lesson only learned as we live, at least deeply learned and grasped as we live. Let's close in prayer.